What so wait so what did Cleopatra smell like? Do you, it also seems do, very biblical. So do you think that pretty soon we'll be able to buy Cleopatra's perfume I in think stores? That's what they're, I think that's what they that's, were going for, right? Because it probably would sell. Is, that's right? where the money is. I know right? what uh, what I'm giving <laughs> for your Christmas wife, gifts right? this year. <laughs> Welcome once again to Free Associations for the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is confused by the latest health study as I am by scoring in tennis. Have you all been watching the the, the U.S. Open? Some of it. Yes. Yeah. Serena, unfortunately, I know. didn't win. But I am incredibly confused by scoring in tennis. Do either of you play? I used to, but I feel like I've, I've internalized the scoring system, so I'm less confused by it. But it is a confusing system. Who, who, I just want to know who, point who, increment and, who sat. No, no, it's not. Oh, okay. That's it. It was like somebody sat down and said, we're going to have a scoring system where zero is a funny sounding version of a French word. <laughs> then we'll have 15 points, then another 15 points, then 10 points because it goes 15, 30, 40. But then you have to win by two, and when we get to that point, we're not even going to have points. It's just going to be advantage, right. not advantage. It makes no sense. Or like the the like seven, you know, kind of seven being like a number almost of biblical significance. Yeah, that kind mm-hmm. of seven set, you know, best of seven. It's, it's the, the you know best of seven in that kind of tiebreaking mode too. Like yeah, it's an interesting system. It's all really weird. Now I want to point out the reason that I'm bringing this up is because I had this exact same conversation with my sister-in-law recently. And she was the one who told me I should use this because she listens to the podcast and I mentioned her on a previous episode and she heard it while driving and got very excited and called me. So just so she knows we are, in fact, <laughs> taking her advice. I thought the tennis scoring was intentional. You, they, it, they, made it, they made it weird on purpose so that it would be an exclusive sport that only oh, interesting. Is that really? privileged people could play. Wow. Oh, that fits in with our theme. It does fit in with our theme oh. today. Historical antecedents. That- yeah. Wow. There you go. That makes a lot of sense, actually. I can believe that. Well, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the BU School of Public Health. I am joined once again by Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome back, Jess. Thanks, Matt. Nice to be here. And as people will remember, we are continuing on with a series that we have been doing that correspond to the five strategic research directions that our school has. So that's climate, the planet, and health, health inequities, infectious diseases, mental health, and behavioral health. And today we are talking about cities and health. So our guest today is Dr. Jonathan Jay from the Community Health Sciences Department at Boston University School of Public Health. Welcome, John. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Glad to have you. So as a reminder to everyone, if you can head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org, that's BU's hub for lifelong learning. Find all kinds of interesting. Nick, is there anything new on on pophealthex.org these days? The mini MPH. So we've got the mini MPH coming up. There's a free option and one with continuing education credits. It's open now. So get in there before the internet breaks. And also as a reminder, head on over to iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcast app and give us a a rating. We did get a new review, but I I don't have it in front of me, but I'm going to read it 
probably next time. Okay, so now onto the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we're going to look at a study on the effects of redlining in the U.S. on preterm birth. And I would imagine some of our listeners, particularly those outside of the U.S., don't know what redlining is. So we'll, we'll explain what that is. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive segment, we'll talk about a commentary written by our guest, but uh, about working on some issues around uh, cities and health and more on firearm mortality in the U.S. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we'll get into some things that make it laugh out loud or we just find fun. So let's get into our first segment. So today we are talking about an article in which they looked at a study of the impact of redlining on preterm birth published in the American Journal of Public Health. This study was titled Structural Racism, Historical Redlining, and Risk of Preterm Birth in New York City 2013 to 2017 by first author Nancy Krieger of the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. This was published in July of 2020, and I should say up front that I have another podcast that I do in which I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Krieger, and she is amazing, but I won't let that influence my review of the study. A couple of headlines on this one. So this had a few headlines and they're not all perfectly related. So uh, New Hampshire Public Radio says in U.S. cities, the health effects of past housing discrimination are plain to see. Science News said what we can learn from how a doctor's race can affect black newborn survival. There's issues with that one. And then the, the New York Times says medical journals reluctant to take on racism, critics say. So obviously that was not directly about the study. That was commentary in which they were noting the study as part of a larger article. Jess, can you uh, walk us through the study? Sure, I absolutely can. And I really encourage, actually, especially our student listeners to to read this article because it is beautifully written and it's extremely clear. And so thanks to John for the suggestion because it is an excellent kind of educational tool and opportunity actually just to read this paper, which is really a pleasure. So Backing up just a little bit to talk about the rationale for this study, and then we can go into the methods and their findings. The core question that Nancy Krieger and her colleagues were looking at is whether structural racism in the past is associated with a present indicator of poor health. And in this case, they're looking at preterm birth. And there's evidence that current racism, including racial segregation, is associated with poor outcomes and a, an increasing literature in this area over the last decade. But the interest here is specifically on the legacy of this sort of institutionalized racism. And, and they're focusing in on redlining as an example of institutionalized racism in the past as the core exposure, comparing that to this current endpoint. So redlining was a practice in the United States in the 1930s where neighborhoods were graded on the basis of their creditworthiness by the homeowner's loan corporation. And these grades were inherently racially discriminatory, reflecting the racial makeup of the neighborhood in both explicit and implicit ways. And so the rankings ranged from A, which reflected the highest or the best uh, creditworthiness neighborhood, to D, which was considered hazardous and the worst, the neighborhood that was uh, worst worthy of, of mortgage investment. And there was a color scheme associated to these different classifications. And so by the time you got to the classification of D, the most hazardous, it was colored red. And so those neighborhoods were, were mapped red on these maps produced by the homeowner's loan corporation. And so hence the term redlining. 
that the neighborhoods were outlined in red. And these neighborhoods in a, you know, were kind of even in explicit text that was produced by this organization, the racial makeup of the neighborhoods were highlighted, um, including kind of uh, patterns of mobility and demographics, the demographics of the characteristics of the neighborhood. So the core research question here is redlining in the past associated with preterm birth nearly 50 years later in New York City. The study population included over half a million live singleton births in New York City from 2013 to 2017. And so this paper was published a few years ago in 2020, but their study, their study uh, timeframe was 2013 to 2017. The data on housing was derived by geocoding the residential address of the mother as recorded on birth records. And the authors also collected demographic characteristics of both the mother and also the mother's census tract of residents in the present using data from the American Community Survey, the ACS. The outcome, as we said, is preterm birth, which was defined here as birth before 37 weeks. The authors used both bivariate and multi-level um, logistic regression models, adjusting for both the individual level maternal sociodemographic characteristics, so race and ethnicity and age and education, for example, of the mother, and also current tract level characteristics, census tract level characteristics, including tract level poverty, as well as an index variable that they developed that reflected racialized economic segregation. And this is an interesting variable I'd especially like to talk with John about how it's used. So what they did in these models is they compared, they used the reference category of A, reflecting the creditworthiness score of A as the reference the category. Highest, the highest. The highest. Group the highest the group, the, the highest group, the most creditworthy group yeah. as their reference category. And they compared that group level A to, to B, to C, and to D, the worst category, using logistic models. And what they noted was that each of these comparisons was associated with an increased odds of preterm birth, typically an odds ratio of 1.2 and above, and these were statistically significant, after adjustment for individual level maternal characteristics, including age, education, race, and ethnicity. And they also looked at, in addition to looking at these relative measures, they also calculated the mean difference, an absolute measure, and that was 1.4 percentage points higher comparing A to D, for example. And they found similar results after adjusting for census tract level poverty and cumulative tract level poverty over time. Notably, the odds ratio was attenuated after they adjusted for current tract racialized economic segregation, which was interesting because this is a metric in the present of a combined index that reflects both racial segregation and also economic segregation. So introduced an element of current racism into their model. So kind of in including both these, this historical core exposure, as well as this current integrated exposure of racism and economic uh, deprivation. So the odds ratio was attenuated, but still significant after they included this index variable. So from these analyses, the authors concluded that historical institutionalized racism in this form, redlining, is associated with negative health outcomes in the present time, specifically focused here on preterm birth, which is an important outcome, which we know can have lifelong negative health consequences. So I think attenuated, but maybe, and not significant. Uh, yeah, Did that's what I was going to okay. say. Yeah, okay. the, the, it looks to me like they were, they were not significant, but we on this program don't care about statistical significance. We care about precision. So we'll let that one go. That's fine. Great summary. So a couple of things occurred to me right away. Uh, number one, this was a ton of work to do this study, yeah. which is really impressive. Number two, how is this just being done now? But 
anyway, we can come back to those. John, what's your, what was your take on this study? You were the one who suggested this to us. Tell us what you thought. I think it's a really important study. So much of urban health is about seeing these inequities. Of course, there's big inequities uh, across places wherever you go, but within cities, it's really tangible how from one block to another, mm-hmm. across a few blocks walk, you see just a huge gradient in terms of access to resources. And this is structured by race. And in this paper, we see how it was determined by U.S. government policies mm-hmm. and practices, in this case from the 1930s. So what do you make of the fact that the effects that they found, or maybe I should say associations that they found in their bivariate models, when they actually added in current racialized economic segregation, those effects were attenuated. They're, you know, they're still in the neighborhood of about a, a 10% increase. But the it, it seems like the effect of current racial economic segregation was actually a bit larger. What do you make of that? Yeah, so I saw this as them testing for pathways through which historical segregation practices would influence these outcomes. Because I think that's that's one of the big questions that comes up with mm. historical exposures like this would be, how could this work? You know, that's 80 years later. And so we're thinking about, is this about the way that the policy determined who could live where? Is it about the kinds of investments that were made as a result of the policy, who had access to mortgages and therefore to building intergenerational wealth. And so really, this is such an important starting point in understanding the historical antecedents of present day inequities. But we also need to understand what are the pathways so we can intervene now. So you brought up a question that I have been trying to figure out forever about redlining. I've never totally understood and I can't get a, a totally clear answer. And I'm hoping one of you knows. Did these maps, and they have these these really easy to read maps in the in the paper. Did the coding that they did apply to the person living there or the person trying to buy a home there? In other words, if I lived in an area that was coded as red, I don't own property, but I want to buy something in another area. Am I barred from from borrowing, or is it only if I want to buy something in the red line neighborhood. That was the part I, I, I've never totally understood. I think maybe one of the most important parts here is how it's the ways in which it's not operating at the individual level. So I think when you talk about credit worthiness, you think, okay, this is something that a lender or a government agency that's backing mortgages would, would care about is like, what is the, is this a good place to issue a mortgage given the likelihood that it'll get paid back? And so you could imagine that in a truly non-racist system that you would be looking at things like, oh, there's there's a lot of trees here, there's a nice public swimming pool, there's a lot of amenities, things that would keep people here, there's a good school so families will be stable. But in fact, the way that they issued these grades was overwhelmingly based on the racial and ethnic composition of the people who lived in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, this is part of why this is sort of a, it's a nice exposure for this study is because each of these grades mapped onto a space and was assigned based on the area level demographic characteristics. And so you mentioned mediating pathways. You talked about adjusting for the current economic segregation 
as testing sort of what is the pathway by which this historical exposure leads to current outcome. Are there other pathways that that you think we should be thinking about here? I mean, how how do we get from something that started in the 1930s, but I mean, it went all the way through the probably what the 1970s that these you know these these uh, policies were were still in effect. How do we get from there to changes in birth outcomes in the present? Yeah, this type of redlining was just one of a series of public and private actions that reinforced residential racial segregation Mm -hmm. and made it harder to access the housing market for people of color, especially black people in cities. I'm especially interested in terms of pathways. I'm especially interested in investment in the physical environment Mm. so that in a lot of the same neighborhoods that experience the worst outcomes and that see the worst racialized economic segregation you see exposure to unkempt vacant lots, which is associated with gun violence, which we'll talk about later, Mm -hmm. um, and all kinds of other environmental hazards. There were policies that explicitly linked zoning policies that cause hazards to be Mm -hmm. located in neighborhoods where there are more people of color. So uh, that's an important pathway that I think we need to be looking into. Absolutely. Jess, what what were your thoughts on this? I mean, it's just just to your question, it's such a deep question, kind of the, you know, the question specifically about how does institutionalized racism negatively affect health? And I think in this case, one of the reasons I love this paper is they actually present a conceptual framework. It's one of their figures, which, you know, for most of us, we do maybe in a grant or maybe in a student paper, but not something that typically goes into a manuscript, but it's actually really nice. And it kind of talks through some of these pathways. And what's interesting about Preterm birth, specifically as an endpoint, to me is that there's also this psychosocial pathway because it's very preterm birth is very tied to the mom's health and the mom's experience during pregnancy, which is then very linked to her mental health and mm-hmm. her experience mm-hmm. during pregnancy. And so it's very striking. I mean, this 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 these the paper and the conceptual framework is very striking just in thinking about how how racism itself can affect every aspect, both in your your built environment and also your psychosocial environment and the history and how the history is very important, that it's not just what's happening in the present. One of the questions that I had for John in reading this was, and they looked at these metrics of current racism and of racial segregation and economic deprivation, which to me seemed to be on a pathway from institutionalized racism in the 30s from their core exposure. And they were trying to disentangle the effect of past and present racism. But the past and the present seemed linked Mm -hmm. to me that a neighborhood that was racially segregated now or economically deprived was an extension of the historical context. So it wasn't clear to me that adjusting for that was taking away the impact of the present but I didn't, maybe I just didn't fully understand it because they, they, they seemed linked to me. And so I was thinking about it as a non-social researcher. This was kind of intriguing. Well, I thought that fit into their conceptual framework. They say that they're doing kind of a mediation type analysis. Yeah. I was kind of curious what you all thought about this. I thought. Because they want to... <laughs> Let me just throw it to you, Matt. I, I mean, no, they, no, no, they, no. they give a lot of disclaimers on, you know, we we weren't able to satisfy all the conditions of a formal causal mediation analysis. Uh, so maybe there's a lot of confounding, but still we're going to present this result of attenuation and say, well, it's suggestive of a mediation effect, which I think maybe doesn't raise as many problems if you're of this sort of question around controls. But no, no, I, I, I'm actually really intrigued by this because I have to say I somehow missed that. I 
when I first looked at this, my reaction to the results was, okay, you see about a 30 to 50% increase in outcome with lower, the lower you are in the uh, whole grades. But, but then when you adjust for uh, current racialized economic segregation, that goes, that's, that doesn't go away, but it gets much smaller. And I, to me, that was sort of a sign of, okay, maybe there's some confounding going on here and maybe it's the, the effect is not quite as large. But I wasn't thinking about the fact that, no, that what they're doing here is, as you say, they're not doing a formal causal mediation analysis, but they're trying to get at how much of the present is on the pathway from the past to today. And so that really actually changes quite a bit my interpretation of that result. I was starting to think to myself, well, maybe maybe actually it's not as big an effect as we thought, but I, now I see what you're saying. But that does beg a second question, which is, and I have to admit, I tweeted about this, and I didn't, I didn't get at the subject. I was just curious because one of the things they adjust for is age, the age of the mother at the time of giving birth. And normally age is something that we, we would always adjust for in analysis. It totally makes sense. You know, it's a potential confounder, but couldn't age also be a mediator in this case? In other words, if you are living in a place where you have less access to resources, you may either, you know, you may, I suppose it could go either way. You, you may delay time at which you have children or you may have them younger. I, I, I don't know which one would be more prevalent, but some of the effect on the outcomes for the child could be mediated through that age. Can age be a mediator? Twitter was unclear. Some said yes, some said no. I hadn't thought of that. I see what you're saying. I think what I like about their design is that it says that the same person, if they are pregnant in one neighborhood versus another neighborhood, will have, is, you know, more likely to have preterm birth if their neighborhood was historically redlined. But that strikes me as plausible as a non, non-maternal non health researcher. Yeah, and I'm not either, but it just, there, there. I think there's a lot going on here. And I really like this paper, but I was kind of confused by that one part. And you really actually made me think about it in a totally different way. I guess my second question is, why do you think that the when you look at these effects, whether you look at the bivariate or the, you know, the third model where they adjusted for racialized economic segregation currently, is the effect size appear to be similar? There is a, a gradient in their kind of, I don't want to say crude model, but their bivariable well, I guess that's a crude model. There is a gradient, but it's not as dramatic as I would have thought. In other words, the difference between B and A is about a 37% increased odds. The difference between D and A is a 55% odds. I, I, I was expecting larger. Do you think that is because this is being mediated through so many pathways that you know we, we would probably see it more in some of these more proximal mediator analyses? Are you talking about the, the fact that there wasn't sort of the A to B B to C, C to D wasn't sort of a linear increase? No, no I mean, that, that there's probably something there too. I, I'm just thinking more like why was my prior on this would be that there would be a much larger effect comparing those in redlined areas to green areas than comparing yellow areas to green areas. There, there is, there is a difference. There's very clearly a difference. It's just not as large as I would have would have guessed. And I'm, I'm just not sure why. I don't know if either of you have thoughts. Something I was unclear about in this paper was the distribution of the different zones, where at some point the authors mentioned that of the women included in the study now, only one and a half percent of them were in a category A 
zone. So it seems that the category A zones were fairly limited. And yeah, I wondered if absolutely. that played into, in some ways, some of this, that that was a pretty small population as the reference group. Yeah. If you look at these map, the, the map that they presented in here, there's very little green. Yeah. I think another thing is C and D may have had relatively similar historical trajectories. Like mm-hmm. A is yeah. super protected, right. uh, really privileged trajectory over time, but gentrification, displacement, yeah. a lot of forces in the middle could come in and, and make uh, C and D similar to each other. So now you've so now you've kind of changed my interpretation here because the other thing that kind of stood out to me was when you adjust for the current racial makeup, the effect, as we said, doesn't disappear. It's not statistically significant, but I don't care about that. It's it's pretty reasonably precise finding. But the size of the effect is fairly consistent comparing B, C, and D to A, which I thought was 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 odd. But now that now that I I sort of get it more, it, it kind of makes sense. Essentially, what they're saying is. There is a gradient effect to the coding system. When you account for the mediating pathway, that effect is still there. It's just fairly consistent across these different gradients once you control for the current racial makeup. So there's, there is still clearly another pathway that is fairly consistent, comes about from this grading system, but the, the much bigger part of it seems to be the past affecting the current racial economic segregation. Right. And I think, you know, as as much as they delineate these four grades, these four Hulk grades, it's not necessarily clear that the implications of those delineations mattered that much historically even, where, you know, there, there would be a difference in mortgage worthiness between A and D, but maybe the differences between A and B and A and C were kind of viewed equivalent as, equivalently as A and D. That it's 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 unclear also that that had a linear relationship in terms of how that impacted the neighborhoods, mm-hmm. and so that was my thought at least in interpreting this that that it could also be an exposure side issue that we assumed that the exposure was linearly bad and maybe it actually was not that there wasn't kind of this gradient that that reflected kind of the what actually happened in those neighborhoods. Yeah. Any any last last thoughts anyone wants to to chime in on before we move on? I had a question. I wanted to ask John about the ICE, this variable mm. that they that they use this index, which I was unfamiliar with, and I was wondering if it's something. Did they if you if you knew if they did they generate this specifically for this research or is that Can you an say index? What ICE is? It is. It's a metric. I forget exactly what it stands for. It's a metric for racialized economic segregation. It's the index of concentration at the extremes. Yes. So index of concentration at the extremes is a segregation measure that was developed by Douglas Massey and Denton and then brought into the public health literature by Nancy Krieger and colleagues uh, in some earlier work. And it can be used to measure any kind of polarization from one end to another, but what has been most fruitful in their work has been measuring polarization from the most privileged group, white affluent households, to the most socially deprived households, black households living in poverty. And so you get a scale from negative one, most deprived, to one, most privileged. And it does something that some other segregation indicators don't do. So if you think about segregation as describing sort of unequal distribution within, let's say, a city, that's something you can only calculate at the city level. Like, it doesn't make sense to calculate a Gini coefficient on uh, racial distribution within a neighborhood, or or it means something very different. And then if you compare it to something like 
concentrated disadvantage or social vulnerability, which can be calculated across multiple levels, I think ICE picks up better this gradient from most privileged to most deprived, which is important in these studies. And as we saw, you know, like maybe A is actually the whole grade of A was really different from the other grades, Mm -hmm. uh, picking up how important privilege is. I I know you had an episode of the show really focused on white privilege, not just about sort of disadvantaged structural racism, people of color. One way that structural racism works is to privilege white populations. And so that's something that we can pick up with this measure as well. That's really interesting because I think I'm more familiar with like the social vulnerability index that you've talked about, which is also a metric of vulnerability but doesn't exclusively look to these extremes. I mean, race is a category in there, is a variable in there as is ethnicity, but it it's not kind of the exclusive focus. There's all these other things too. And so it's interesting to see this, this index that kind of specifically focuses on race and poverty and together. Poverty, yes. together. And what they have shown yeah. is that it predicts health outcomes better than race alone or mm-hmm. poverty alone. Mm-hmm. And that is conceptually important, you know, obviously, it, it helps break down this debate that we sometimes hear around, you know, is it racism? Is it economics? But of course, these things are so tightly intermingled by design that uh, capturing them both together is going to pick up the variation that you want. I, I just want to hit one last point, which you, you just brought up, and I think it's just worth emphasizing. I mean, we've been sort of talking about this to this point about, or at least I have, you know, the negative health effects of being in that redlined area. Whereas really probably the way this should be reframed, particularly given that finding of the way things flatten out when you account for current racial makeup is that really we're looking at the effects of, as you said, the effects of privilege, not the, not just at the harms of the policy. So it's really is, it does seem to me, it's really important to emphasize that because that, that gradient really does flatten out when you account for that mediator. But if we think, too, of the outcome, I mean, this is an outcome that has future-leaning relevance, right? You look at preterm birth, and that's an indicator for all kinds of poor outcomes in the next generation. And so this isn't, you know, different from an outcome like death or like, you know, kind of in the in the Absolutely. present. This is a forward-leaning indicator that kind of, you know, really highlights the continued longitudinal negative impact of these historical events. Absolutely. All right. Well, we we have to move on, but I have to say this is one of the rare times when we've had a study that I I liked going in and liked more after the discussion. Normally, I back off a little bit once I hear the the explanations and critiques. Not that I dislike them after I hear them, but I I, I went in the opposite direction this time. All right. So let's move on to our second segment where we're, again, for this sort of series that we're doing, we're focusing on the strategic research directions. As I said today, we're talking about issues related to cities and health. And we're going to talk about a commentary that John wrote in JAMA Network Open entitled Understanding Spatio-Temporal Trends in U.S. Firearm Mortality. Now, you were, this was an invited commentary that you wrote talking about another piece of research. But can you sort of walk us through what your main points in that commentary were? Yes. So I was responding to an article by uh, Michelle Degliasposti and colleagues, which had looked at trends in gun deaths in the U.S. from the 1980s to the period just before the COVID pandemic. And what they found, they were looking specifically for outlier counties, counties that did better or worse than the national trend on gun homicides, gun suicides, and total gun deaths. And so where I came to that from in sort of commenting was picking up on some of these really important long-term longitudinal trends. 
And from the perspective of an urban health researcher, I'm primarily focused on gun homicides. There are tens of thousands of gun deaths a year in the U.S. More of them are suicides than homicides. But among every population other than white men, gun homicides are a, a greater cause of death. So we say that again. So in every population other than white men, white men, gun yes. homicides are a greater between, cause of death than suicide. Yeah, the difference between suicides and homicides is explained by mm-hmm. much higher rates of gun suicide among among white men. And so gun homicide is predominantly an urban problem, largely because of the kinds of inequalities that we've been talking about. And it displays these huge racial disparities. So gun homicide work is, I think, really fundamentally sort of racial equity project. And one thing that the authors found was that the counties that were high outliers for gun homicide, so meaning counties that did worse than the national trend on gun homicide over this period, were largely included a lot of counties that have larger black populations and higher rates of poverty. And two that kind of pop out in either direction are Baltimore and Washington, D.C., where Baltimore is a high outlier and D.C. is a low outlier. And, you know, I think so many people come to this work from a lot of perspectives, looking at gun laws and all kinds of other policies. But for me, when you look at Baltimore and D.C., the most important thing that happened over this period between those two cities is that D.C. gentrified dramatically and Baltimore didn't. And a lot of the high outlier gun homicide counties are just counties that are more impacted by structural racism, where these kind of material deprivation, racialized economic segregation hits those counties harder. And so they have uh, higher gun homicide rates. And so the paper I was commenting on doesn't look so much at causal factors mm-hmm. or sort of mm-hmm. covariates. But to me, the, the hypothesis to beat about what explains all of this is just those patterns of racialized economic segregation. So one of the things I thought was interesting here, you talked about, I mean, you were referring to what the authors were talking about here, but you talked about the fact that much of the work that's been done looking at state-level policies on guns has shown really modest effects. And you say that that's not the right unit of analysis. I don't, I don't know exactly how you would put it. Can you say a little bit about that? Why is that not the right? State gun laws are, are really important. But they seem to have relatively modest effects, especially on gun homicide. Mm -hmm. And one sort of obvious reason that that could be true is that a lot of the guns that are used in homicides have been transferred on the illegal market. So, you know, Massachusetts has incredibly strict gun laws compared to other states. And so a larger proportion of the guns that are going to be recovered after one person shoots another person were purchased in a different state trafficked to Massachusetts and then used in this form of violence. So that that that's one of the clearest reasons that the, the laws itself won't be enough because of the ability of, you know, just like, you know, one state having a tough COVID policy wasn't enough to contain the virus here. I think the same is true with um, state level gun laws. And, and, and am I right? I mean, Chicago would be a, a, a really good example. There's been Chicago is very easy access from Chicago to a bordering state with much looser gun laws. So it's very easy for guns to make their way into Chicago, even though you've got stricter gun laws there. It just doesn't, you can't do it on your own. Exactly. I thought you were also making an interesting point about the value of highly refined geospatial data where, you know, you were, and we were talking about this in the last paper as well, kind of looking at a census tract level, for example, 
if you look at a county level, you know, a county level or a state level, you mask what's going on. You can mask racism or you can kind of mask segregation that's associated with gun violence specifically in smaller communities where you would not see those trends if you looked at a larger geospatial scale, which I thought was interesting because it's linked also to kind of to the redlining analysis that, you know, that these sometimes you have to look really small to see these patterns that actually come from big picture mm-hmm. problems, kind of really big picture problems. It's not as if these census tracts alone are affected by racism, but you can see you can see the implications more clearly when you look at data at a high resolution. Absolutely. One of the interesting patterns is, so it takes a certain concentration of deprivation to get high endemic gun violence, interpersonal gun violence. And so, yeah, if you go up, if you zoom out enough, you can really obscure the fact that, you know, whether it's adjacent neighborhoods have really starkly different levels of privilege and deprivation, or or even urban areas where white flight means that, you know, a city like Detroit is 90% black with very high poverty rates and the surrounding suburbs are more white, more privileged. This comes up in conversations about highways. So this mm-hmm. is a yep. historical factor mm-hmm. that doesn't come up in the Krieger paper, but urban renewal in the 50s, 60s, 70s, in addition to sort of bulldozing black residential neighborhoods, created the conditions in which it became easier for privileged affluent white families to live in new suburbs, drive their cars through the city into their jobs, and you know basically leave the urban residents behind. It's it's striking how much I mean if you look at the the building of highways in the you know starting in what the 40s and 50s where they are located is they they go through the areas with the least least power and and the least privilege and it's you could have I think could have predicted what that was going to do but when you don't have power that's what ends up happening I'm just really struck by that uh, one other thing I want to ask you about is one of the things you say in here and again commenting on what the authors are talking about that there was this, this big decline in crime in the US throughout the the 90s and yet the crime was declining but firearm injuries was not declining. Do we have any sense for why that is? I mean, you would think that if crime in general was going down, that this would be part of all crime and that things would kind of move together. And yet it doesn't seem like that's what's happened. This is all hotly debated. One thing that happens during this period is a rise in gun suicide. Mm. So that's balancing out some of the decline in homicides. But I mean, really striking is that what happened even after the period that the authors study here is an unprecedented spike in gun homicide during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So we nearly reached those peak Mm -hmm. early 90s gun homicide levels. A paper came out recently that found that among children, just the increase in child gun deaths during the pandemic was comparable to the number of children who died from COVID. So just yeah. that additional uh, number of kids who, who died from, from guns. So I think in this paper, what we're seeing is partly gun suicides filling in the gap from that so-called crime decline. And then 
a lot of those kind of homicide deaths being replaced, mm-hmm. basically sort of returning to those higher levels mm-hmm. during the pandemic. I'm also going to quote you to yourself here because I, I underlined this because <laughs> I think it's 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 written so well. You, you wrote structural forces may have excluded communities of color from the full benefits of improved social conditions over this period, whether through physical disinvestment, economic exclusion, mass incarceration or other processes. The idea that you have smaller identifiable neighborhoods on a kind of finely tuned geospatial scale where you see that these larger scale patterns did not hold. And actually there were not benefits. These benefits were not evenly shared across communities. Yes. Other researchers have studied this is sort of the, this so-called crime decline did not benefit communities equally. And I think I've done some preliminary work looking at Boston and other cities, and it does seem reasonably likely that a lot of this decline can be explained solely by neighborhoods that once had a lot of gun violence being sort of populated, being gentrified, taken over by people with more privilege. And so the people who live in neighborhoods that still have endemic gun violence really are not better off than they were before the so-called decline. Really interesting. I, I appreciate you being willing to to chat with us about that. So let's let's move on to our our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. Jess, what do you what do you got for us? Well, this is something very different than what we've been talking about mm-hmm. so far. A little bit lighter. There was an article published in Science News that I jumped on from a couple of months ago about smellscapes. And this has, as an environmental health epidemiologist, this has always been something that's been interesting to me is about exposures that we don't typically quantify or we don't think about, that we don't think about. And I think bad smells <laughs> or good smells are one of those kind of exposures that, you know, if we're talking, I mean, even if we're talking kind of continuing the conversation about living in poverty can be associated with bad smells. I mean, I've, I've done some research on rodents, for example, and kind of that's an example of, of visuals of kind of seeing rodents in your living environment that makes you feel badly about where you live. And bad smells is another example of one of those exposures. And it's very subjective in terms of how you, or it's thought to be very subjective in terms of how you quantify what's a bad smell, you know. And so this this paper was reflecting on a number of papers that have tried to regenerate ancient smellscapes. Mm. So to look at archaeological remains and to try to figure out what historical societies smelled like (laughs) to people who lived there. And so the paper walks through some experiments where some researchers have tried to, on one hand, redevelop Cleopatra's perfume from DNA remnants and from molecular evidence kind of found on artifacts and to try to figure out what she must have, this is like the most alluring woman in history, kind of what she must have smelled like. And then on the other hand, tried to recreate some of the putrid smells of ancient Egypt Why? or of, of Rome. And in doing so, there were a number of papers that have concluded that we actually don't smell things that differently across the world or throughout history, that there are certain things that, you know, that maybe smell or bad smells are things that actually could be quantified in a fairly reliable way that across cultures and seemingly across history, we seem to think the same things smell bad and the same things smell good. There's not this huge variation, whereas you'd say, well, you might think pine needles smell terrific and you might think pine needles smell horrible. And so, you know, the kind of combination of these papers kind of led me to think about whether or not smells is actually something that could be quantified in epidemiological research in a way where now it's kind of a qualitative measurement largely. Okay, that is 
Not something I would have ever thought anybody would be researching. I love that. Wait, what, so wait, yeah. so what did Cleopatra smell like? They yeah. all right. So here, let's see. They they they, they came up with it's a combination of smells. This obviously was an international an international collaboration. Let's see. They called it the Mendesian scent. Here, they said strong but pleasant, long-lasting blend of spiciness and sweetness, including desert date oil, mirth, cinnamon. And pine resin. This was the combination. Sounds nice. This sounds kind of kind of like earthy, like <laughs> pine resin and cinnamon. I don't know if I know what mirth smells like, but do it's you, also seems do, very biblical. So, do you think that pretty soon we'll be able to buy Cleopatra's perfume I in think stores? That's what they're, I think that's what they that's, were going for, right? Because it probably would sell. Is, <laughs> that's right. where the money is. I know right? what uh, what I'm giving <laughs> for Christmas wife, gifts right? this year. <laughs> All right. Well, that is fascinating. I think we should do that. I mean, like our our, we'll start a business. Well, (laughs) no, the smellscape. I I, like our our former colleague uh, Erica Walker now at Brown. Right, worked on this urban soundscape. Soundscape. Mm -hmm. We had her on this show. Yeah, to talk about it. She's great. Yeah, yeah. So you think we should create a smellscape? It's got. It has to produce health outcomes. Right. For sure. I mean, Mm. especially, you know, especially Mm. in association with poverty where people are smelling smells that in higher income neighborhoods, we are, you know, specifically designed not to smell. Mm. Right. So you have smelled, I mean, specifically of sewage, you have smells of sewage, you have smells associated with dead animals, with... Um, with bodily, other kind of bodily secretions. Right? You also reminded me, I was supposed to talk to you about rats. Harold oh. Cox said, talk to Jessica about rats. <laughs> Why? Why? Well, he hates rats, <laughs> but I think the vibe that I got was that he hates rats, cannot tolerate rats at all, doesn't even want to think about or talk uh, about rats, but you do want to think about and talk about rats. I love to talk about rats because I, I think they, you know, they're very... Uh, they're they're everywhere. They're they're then they're not even so hidden, but they're an indicator. There are of, a lot of rats. There's a these lot days. of rats. There's a lot. People think there's a lot more rats now, yes. but it, it's it's hard to know because of the pandemic, or if people are just home more and right. so see them more. Right. It's associated with poverty and poor living conditions, and can have both as a disease vector, and also as you know, a, kind of something that poorly impacts mental health in terms of having rodents in your living environment. So there's negative health consequences all around with rodents. I'm still waiting to see. Someone published the health benefits of cohabitation with wild rats. I don't think that's going to happen. But, All right, we will have to we we'll have to do a show on rats at some point. Happy to. All right. All right. So I am I am going to call an audible here because this is not one I was planning to talk about, right. which means I don't actually know it in detail. I was saving this for later, but it fits well enough with what you just talked about that I'm going to bring it up, even though I can only really sort of give you the the abstract overview. But Don would be very proud of me for this because this actually is a study that won an Ig Nobel Award, no. despite the fact that I think it's actually really interesting. But it won an Ig Nobel Award because when you hear the kind of research that they're doing, it sounds kind of funny, which is that there is this group that is – and I actually think it's it's a couple of different groups, but they are researching whether or not you can predict the – age classification of a movie based on the organic compounds that people exhale during said movie. No, no. (laughs) And so they did, they got these, they get these like, I don't know what you call them, but these, these devices that will measure the different uh, volatile organic compounds that are, that are being emitted during movies. They varied up the types of movies. They, they had one like movie theater where they were set this all up. The, they knew the age, well, they knew the age 
rating of a particular movie. They knew um, they would look at different genres of movie because they felt that, you know, like sex scenes, people would be emitting different compounds than scary scenes. And there are different reasons for these classifications. And it was not it was not overly successful, but they did find some promising areas where they could, uh, they say, so promising results were found for isoprene, which reliably predicted 0, 6, and 12 age classifiers for a variety of film genres and audience age groups. So they were able to predict, it, it, to an extent, the type of movie that it was and the you know age classification based on you know, how racy or violent or whatever it was. I don't know exactly where this research goes. Yeah, you mentioned the promising result. Like, what's promising <laughs> about that? Who, could, who's in the audience well, for a I think movie the idea, I think the idea is that if you could, because, I mean, like, how many times, well, not how many times, but sometimes you watch a movie that has a certain rating, and you're like, why does that have that rating? And then, you know, you watch another movie, and, you know, it's all ages, and you're like, ooh, that's, I wouldn't want to watch that with my kids. And so this, the idea would be that you could have a better classification system if you could base it based off of people's reactions rather than based off of just somebody saying, you know, there was, you know, too much nudity in this. I don't, I don't know. That's, I, that's I, where I, I'm would, going I would like it. a measurement that could set, that could tell you as a parent, like this movie is going to be really uncomfortable to watch with your kids. <laughs> so if you could give me some sort of, there's like a molecular screen for those kind of movies. That wouldn't be really interesting. Okay. So parents getting anxious because it's starting yeah, to get dyads for the next study. <laughs> right, right. There, there, okay. I have, I have a number of experiences. I won't go into specifics of watching movies that I watched as a kid, watching them with my kids Movies that I absolutely loved when I was really young, watching them thinking, what in the world were my parents thinking letting me watch yeah. these movies? And it was the most, it was the most uncomfortable experience. But I had these really fond memories of watching these movies. Airplane is one of them, mm-hmm. by the way. Airplane, mm-hmm. totally inappropriate. But that right, was, right, right. Nick is nodding. Nick knows what I'm talking about. That was a movie that was before the, it was, there was only G, PG, and R. And so it got a PG rating, even though it certainly would have gotten a PG-13 rating now, but we didn't have that back then. And so I remember watching that. I was probably like eight. And then, you know, most of it goes over your head at that age, but it is it is not appropriate for kids. So that's all I'm saying. <laughs> all right. So that is the end of our episode. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on. You can tweet us at PopHealthEx, or you can find any of us on our various Twitter accounts, or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank John for joining us, and we want to thank Leslie Talalian, Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound, editing, and movie ratings. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you'll download our next episode. Mm-hmm.